Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. I'll forewarn you, I have lost my Bible since the last service. And that doesn't mean the sermon's going to be shorter. Probably means it'll be longer. So pray. If somebody finds it right in the middle of the message, just bring it up to me. Right? It has my name in front. All the great religions of the world have a symbol representing what those religions believe and stand for. In Buddhism, it is the lotus blossom. It resembles a wheel, and it's symbolic of the fact that there's a cycle, birth, death, birth, death, ad infinitum. Also, the emergence of harmony out of chaos. The Jewish religion has the Star of David, two equilateral triangles so situated that they form a hexagram. And that is symbolic of the fact that the throne of David, as God has promised, will last forever. And also the Messiah will descend from David's line. Islam borrows its symbol actually from the Byzantine Empire, which it conquered. And the crescent is representative of authority, sovereignty more precisely. And when you know about Islam, you know the word itself means submission. Islamic people live in submission to Allah. It's no secret what the symbol of our faith is. It is the cross, isn't it? There's hardly anywhere in the world that you and I could find ourselves today that we could not find a building adorned by a cross on some high point of that building. We read from the book of 1 Corinthians how in Paul's day, there were two groups who found the cross offensive. The Jews found it to be a stumbling block. And there's a good reason for that. In the book of Deuteronomy, the 21st chapter, and the 23rd verse, the Bible says, cursed is every man who is hanged on a tree. The cross was the equivalent of a tree. The religious leaders of Judaism, this was not true of the rank and file descendant of Abraham, but the leaders themselves were very concerned about the message Jesus was teaching. In fact, they believed that he was proclaiming himself to be God become man. And they were right, but they did not have room in their thinking for such a thing. So they wanted to get him killed. They wanted him out of the way because he was dangerous to their establishment religion. The problem being that they could not carry out the law of Moses in executing him, which they were perfectly legitimate in doing according to their understanding so they found a way that would discredit Jesus, would shame him, would declare him a criminal. 
They knew that if they could get Pilate, who was the representative of Caesar in that region, to declare that Jesus was a traitor, had created treason against the emperor, then there would be a sentence rendered by Pilate, execution because of a capital offense. And no ordinary execution. Execution upon a tree, the cross of Christ, as we know it. And so, you know the story. Pilate finally caved in to the pressure that was put upon him by these Jewish leaders. And Jesus Christ went to the cross. Cursed is the man who is hanged on a tree. Keep that in mind. But there was a larger sect of people, a larger group of people. These people are simply declared Gentiles. The word Gentile means any nation other than the nation of Israel. And those people found in Jesus and the message of the cross foolishness in that they just didn't understand it. There probably would be dozens of people present today who, if they would, could stand and say, before I came to know Jesus Christ, the whole message of the gospel of Jesus Christ made no sense at all to me. And such people largely would be people who are well-educated, people who have better than average IQs, people whom we would call sharp people, but they just would not understand it. It's foolishness to them. It contradicts the wisdom of the world. The world's wisdom is to boast. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, the book of Psalms says, but we boast in the name of the Lord our God. Men boast in themselves and other people. The Bible says in the book of Jeremiah, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me, says the Lord. We know what eternal life is. It's a very simple statement in the book of John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Simple, yet foolishness to the Jew and to the person who is not Jewish. Many of them hear this message. It's a stumbling block and it's the absence of wisdom on the other side of the equation, the cross. I'm reminded of something which happened in Manhattan, perhaps on Fifth Avenue, probably a quarter of a century or more ago. A young woman was looking for jewelry to adorn her body. She went into a very well thought of jewelry store. She told the person who greeted her and said, may I help you? She said, I want to buy a necklace. She looked at all the assortments, styles of necklaces. And then she decided she wanted a cross. And so the salesperson took a beautiful piece of black velvet, placing these various cloths, uh, various crosses on the cloth. 
And then she looked at them and she surveyed them. She handled them. And finally, she took her index finger and pointed it to one. And she says, I'll take this one with the little man on it. She had no idea what the cross was about. To her, it was a piece of jewelry with a little man on it. Many people who come to churches like this in America and around the world don't have a clear understanding of what the cross that Christ died on is all about. Thank God we're not left to our own devices to figure that out. Today we're going to look at one verse of scripture actually with some help from some other places in the New Testament to determine what that's all about. It's going to be revolutionary in one person's life here probably if not more to understand the true meaning of the cross, the death of Jesus Christ on that cross. It is foolishness to those who are perishing to hear a message like this. The preaching our word of the cross is foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God, isn't it? It's that which sets us free. We heard these testimonies from these young men and how both of them were uniform in the sense that their lives have been reoriented. Their lives have been set free. Jesus says, if you abide in the truth, and what is the truth? Jesus himself declares himself as the truth. The word of God is the truth. If you abide in my word, the truth, you shall know the truth, and what does the truth do? sets us free. I could not help but believe as we were led in our congregational music, it was a stirring time in my heart as I worshiped the Lord under the direction of our worship team. A statement that Jesus makes in John chapter 12, where he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus knew what he was talking about. And if you know anything about the book of John, you know what he's talking about. He's talking about his throne. His throne was not fit for any ordinary king. It was a cross. He died on the cross for us. So having said that, I want to ask you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament. The third chapter. And our desire is that we would fully understand why Christ died, the meaning of Christ's death. We're looking at verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 3. It says this, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I'm going to give you five things about the cross. If you're taking notes, I'm going to give them all five of them now and jot them down and then come back and fill in with some explanation if you wish. First of all, Christ died solitarily. His death was a solitary death. Secondly, his death was savage. We'll look at that in just a moment. It was solitary and savage. Thirdly, it was a death 
that was substitutionary. Fourthly, it was a death which was satisfactory. And I'll remember the fifth one before I finish, okay? <laughs> that one's blanked out, but it'll come to me as I share the message. So let's begin with this concept. Jesus Christ died in a solitary way. The scripture says, for Christ died for sin once for all, the just. Jesus was the only person uniquely qualified to be our Savior. The reason being is that Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God, which I've already mentioned. And Jesus had to be that combination of fully human and perfect without flaw. Jesus Christ himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, in order for us to be admitted into heaven, listen carefully, Jesus says, ye be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That eliminates all of us, doesn't it? Especially when we lay our lives alongside what the scripture teaches about the whole issue of sin. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned. And it only takes one sin in my heart to create alienation between me and God. We read to begin our worship service, the 22nd Psalm. I hope you were here to listen to the words. Perhaps you know it even if you were not here. But the way it begins is with this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you familiar with that statement? You may not have known that it is found in the first line of the 22nd Psalm. But as you progress through that Psalm, what you discover is there is clear anticipation of a Savior who will save the world. And the Savior is speaking in this Psalm. And this Psalm was written a thousand years before the crucifixion. David was the human author. And we hear David write about how they will wag their heads, they will mock this individual who will be the Savior. He will be pierced and the picture is that of be crucified. This is amazing too because there was no such form of execution as crucifixion at that time. In fact, a half a millennium passed, over 500 years passed before the Persians adopted the cross as a means of crucifying. It was an incredible death. Jesus died for us. He was the only one who was qualified to stand in the gap for us because of who he is. Fully human, fully divine. Only one who could do that. Jesus died a solitary death because God forsook him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which raises a question. Why did God the Father separate himself from Jesus? Well, 
The Bible tells us that God the Father has such pure eyes, he can't even look on sin. So he knew that Jesus was on the cross. It didn't escape his notice for sure. He was involved in that whole process. But he could not have a relationship. Now, mind you, how long had God the Father and Jesus had a relationship to that point? From eternity past all the way until that time, the three hours when there was darkness which came over the face of the earth, and that in itself was an indication that God was absent because the Bible says God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God turned his back on Jesus when Jesus was on the cross and it was excruciating for Jesus to be separated from his father. So what do we learn? Christ died for us and he died alone. His death was solitary. His death was savage. The process of crucifixion began earlier than the moment of being nailed to the tree of Calvary. It began when the sentence was pronounced by Pilate on behalf of the Roman emperor that this man was guilty of treason and that he would go through the protocol of punishment. The first aspect would have been a vicious beating. There was an instrument called the flagellum. It was a piece of wood, probably about that long, and the one who would wield the flagellum in executing that part of the crucifixion, and sometimes there would be two of them. It was such an exhausting experience when they would whip, if there were two, one would whip, and the parts of that rawhide that would rip around the body and wrap around it would be covered in pieces of lead and glass and then pulling with all the might of these men given that responsibility, it would rip the flesh to ribbons. Sometimes the whipping would go from the shoulders all the way down to the knees but the worst part was regarding the torso because it would pull the flesh away, the muscular system would be compromised and it's said by those who witnessed it. We have eyewitnesses that the entrails, the internal organs would be laid bare. Jesus underwent that. 39 lashes. Jesus was so exhausted, you may remember, when they put the robe that he wore, the only garment which he owned back on him, he had a crown of thorns and he had to carry the cross to the place of execution. What we ordinarily see in depictions of this by artists is the cross is two pieces, the vertical piece and the horizontal piece. But what we now know from archeological discoveries is that it was really only the horizontal piece that he would take and it was called the patibulum. This piece was carried on the shoulders of the victim of crucifixion and would weigh somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 50 pounds. Now think about this, Jesus beaten severely, brutalized savagely. Jesus, who is dehydrated by
by loss of blood and by lack of rehydration. No opportunity to drink. And here he is, he's carrying it under the weight of it. He slumps to the ground. A man named Simon of Cyrene is conscripted by one of the detail of the Roman soldiers who were given the responsibility to get Jesus from the praetorium where the sentence was declared to the hill of Calvary or Golgotha where the execution on the cross would be completed. He was taken to the cross. His hands had nails, spikes, probably eight inches Long, if you've ever seen a railroad tie, have you ever seen one? That sort of nail in those ties. And it would be driven one into each hand, not in the hand as we typically see. Scholars say it would be driven here. There's a notch, as it were, between the hand and the rest of the arm there, driven in, searing pain. It would compromise the nervous system in that part in an incredible way. And then the feet would be placed one over the other and another nail driven through. Typically, people who were crucified died of asphyxiation and or shock. Asphyxiation because there would be fluid collecting in the lungs. And in effect, many, if not most of the victims of crucifixion died drowning actually in their own fluids. And then they, some would die due to shock because of blood loss. We know Jesus didn't reach that point. He was only on the cross. I say only, I'm apologetic, Lord, to even say that about only, about what you endured for me, six hours. It was not uncommon for men to stay on the cross for days in their bout with that kind of savagery. You see the savage nature of the death of Christ? For Christ also died for sins. For sins, that's important. That, in fact, if we had the knowledge of the language of the New Testament, this is what we would see. That the writers of the language of the New Testament, which was Greek, when the writer wanted to emphasize something above everything else, what that writer would do to accomplish that is put the words of a phrase or a, a verb or a noun at the very front of the sentence. It would be poor grammar for us as English speakers or Spanish speakers to do such a thing. But this, these are the two words that appear for sins. Christ died for our sins. His death was solitary. His death was something that was savage. His death was also, and this is very important, it's all important. His death was substitutionary. He stood in the gap for you and me. The Bible says, I'll just give you two references. One in the book of Romans chapter 5, verse 10, where the Bible says, greater love has no one than this. God demonstrated it, his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, now catch this, Christ died for us. If we took time to read all that goes before that statement, what we would discover would be these principles. Paul writing, he said, seldom would a man give his son to die for a good man. 
But the idea of a man giving his son to die for a wicked man, an enemy, would be out of the question. And that's exactly what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, the Bible says, who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He was the perfect sacrifice and he died for us so that we might know God. What a savior we have. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He subbed in for us. Christ died for sins once for all. The just, Jesus, perfectly righteous. And God the Father, the thrice holy God, perhaps you remember in the book of Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah the prophet has a vision and he sees into heaven and he sees these angelic beings and they are crying antiphonally. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We know God is love, but there's never an occasion in the Bible where God is declared as love, love, love. That doesn't mean he's not the superlative of love. Not at all, don't mishear me. But the only place the Bible uses something three times and in Hebrew thought, you emphasize to the superlative degree any concept you're communicating by repeating it three times. Holy, holy, holy. The just, Jesus the just, for us the unjust. Jesus died a death that was a substitutionary death. There's a man named Barabbas whose story is told by some of the gospel writers. He was a scoundrel. He was public enemy number one as far as the Romans were concerned. In fact, he found himself in a Roman prison the same time Jesus was being railroaded and eventually executed on a cross. And he was awaiting the same fate that Jesus was experiencing on the day that Christ died for us. And this is a story, I, I think of Barabbas. And I, I think he's every one of us, really, or we are him. Can you imagine when he heard the people at the encouragement of the religious leaders of Judaism trying to put pressure on Pilate to give someone else freedom and let Christ be crucified because that was common in that day that the Roman representative on that particular time of the year at Passover could have a criminal who was set free. And they cried, Barabbas, Barabbas. He didn't house himself very far from there. He could hear it. His name calling, I can imagine what might have gone through his mind. He's saying, it's my time. I'm gonna die for sure. And can you imagine when he would hear the jailer walking down the hallway and the clanging of the keys at the side of this jailer coming and putting the key into the door and opening it and telling him, you're free. Someone else is going to die instead of you. We're Barabbas. We're guilty. All of us. There is none righteous, no, not one, is what the Bible says. 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory. That's what the Bible says. All our righteous works, if we worked a thousand years, a thousand lives, we would not be able to do enough goodness to put us right with God because one sin, remember, separates us from a one. Only it, all it takes is one. But like Barabbas, we have the possibility of being set free from a rightly deserved execution, separated from God for eternity. But Jesus did what we could never do. He took our place. He was the perfect substitute. Here's the fourth thing. And the fifth thing will just have to wait until I find my notes. And I'm not going to find them today. Here it is. His was a death that only he could die. Solitary death. It was a savage death. It was a substitutionary death. Thank the Lord. God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might be made right with God. Here's the last one. It was a satisfactory death. It was exactly what God had planned and what he desired. He would not accept anything less than that kind of death because of his holiness. Please keep your place in 1 Peter. Turn back over to the book of Romans. We're going to look at Romans chapter 3. We're going to look beginning with verse 23. This is what we read in Romans 3, 23 and following. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that means made right, by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How did Jesus redeem us? Going back to Romans chapter 3 for just a moment. Let's pick up verse 25. Talking of Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The word propitiation carries with it the idea of substitute. It was Jesus who willingly... He didn't have to have his arm twisted. Lay down his life for us. He loved us so much. Father did and so did the Lord Jesus Christ. And this propitiation, the work of Christ is what it is, where Christ experienced the wrath of God for sin on himself and has to be received by faith, not works, saying, Lord, I believe what you say in your word. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God the Father was faced with a dilemma regarding us. The, the dilemma was he loved us. He loved us. God loved, so loved the world. He loves us. But the problem that blocks our reception of the love is that we are estranged by sin. We have sinned. So in order to be just, he has to maintain his holiness, right? In order to express his love because he wants to justify us, that is make us right 
before him. He sent Christ, who was the combining of incredible, incredible love. Perfect love is what the Bible says. And perfect morality. And in those two, the wedding of those two is the satisfaction of God's requirement that we be holy, perfect in effect to get into heaven. That's not because of what we do either before or after we come to Christ. It's because of what he has done and he transfers all that to me and to you. Isn't that awesome? I want to finish with one other observation. Maybe this is the fifth one. I don't know. <laughs> Probably is. And it's the idea that Christ's death is curative. Now, what do I mean by that? I'll give you an illustration. Several times in the book of Mark, for instance, there are incidents where Jesus sees someone who's ill and he heals them. And in more than one case, he'll say to the individual, your faith has made you well. The one which stands out most prominently in my memory is one about a man named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was blind. And Bartimaeus had heard of Jesus. He had caught wind that Jesus was coming through his hometown, which was Jericho. And little did Bartimaeus know that Jesus was marching. He was marching all the way on his way to Jerusalem for the final Passover. And he knew that meant death for him. And he, he's coming by and the crowds are gathering around him. Jericho was a large city in that area. And so the people heard about him and he had a throng of people around him everywhere he went. And this blind man, Bartimaeus, said to those around him, who is it? Who is it? And they said, it's Jesus. And then immediately he says, son of David, have mercy on me. And they said, shut up, blind man. This is an important man. And then he said it again, probably with more gusto than the first, son of David, have mercy on me. What did Jesus do? He stopped what he was doing, went over and asked him, what do you want me to do for you? What did he say? I want my sight. I'm blind. I need sight. And Jesus says, you've got it. And then he said to this blind man, Bartimaeus, your faith has made you well. He received his sight. The Bible also says not only are we dead in our sins, but also we are blind. That's why the wise Gentiles of Paul's day couldn't accept Christ because it was foolishness to them. But here's another thing as we finish. That word translated well, your faith has made you well, is the word that's used over and over again by Jesus and by the New Testament for our word saved. It's the word saved. So there is double meaning to it. Your faith has made you well and you are saved from your sins. What a wonderful Savior we have. Jesus, our Lord. I want you to bow your heads for just a moment.
Maybe the Lord has spoken to you today, not audibly, but in your heart. And he has pinpointed the fact that you need a savior. You cannot save yourself because of your own sin. And he's calling you to confess your sin to him. To say to Jesus, Lord Jesus, I had no idea. I didn't know that I couldn't get right with you and the Father on my own by being good. I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me. I humbly ask you to come into my heart. And Lord, I want to follow you as my leader for the rest of my life. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place on the cross. Thank you for loving me. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, you probably have some questions. And we are here to help you answer those questions. I'm talking about pastors, elders, other members in the church. We want to help you come to know Christ and grow in Christ. I'll be here afterwards. I'm not going to rush off. There'll be other people here. And we're so grateful for these two young men who are baptized. Come on up here, young men. Esteban, Mauricio, stand here and come by. Take a moment and encourage these young men in their profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. See you Thursday night, then again on Easter Sunday.